You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 70, A Loneliness and the Value of Solitude. Today on Minding the Brain, I have Dr. Robert Copeland joining me. So just a bit of background, uh, Rob Copeland received his BSc in Psych at McGill University. I would like to mention that I also received my BA in Psych at McGill, but a little bit after your time. Anyway, then he went on and did his MA and PhD in Developmental Psychology at the University of Waterloo. And he's been a faculty member in the Department of Psychology at Carleton University since 1995, where he presently holds the rank of Chancellor's Professor. He also currently has international academic appointments in the Department of Special Needs Education at the University of Oslo, Norway, as well as the Faculty of Education Chair Professor at Shanghai Norman University in the People's Republic of China. His research focuses on experiences of solitude across the lifespan and across cultures, and in particular, he has extensively explored the development and implications of shyness, social withdrawal, and preference for solitude in childhood, adolescence, and emerging adulthood. Over the course of his storied career, Dr. Copeland has published more than 300 journal articles and chapters in edited volumes, and he's also authored and edited five academic books, which have been translated and published internationally, for example, in Sweden, Spain, Japan, Korea, and China. And we're particularly happy to have him join us here today on Mining the Brain because his latest project is writing a popular press book to be published by Simon & Schuster in 2025 called All Alone, The Promise of and Paradox of Solitude. So, welcome to Mining the Brain. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So, let's get started with just talking a little bit about solitude in general. When I think about solitude, you know, I'm kind of mixed about it. Is it, is it good? Is it bad? What, what do you think? What does your research say? Yeah, there, I mean, there's a long history in terms of the study of solitude, and people look at it from a psychological perspective, but of course also in literature and popular culture and poetry, and it's certainly a common experience. We all spend time alone, um, but I think historically ho- solitude has a bad rap. It's just got a bad reputation, and for good cause, because spending too much time alone can certainly cause issues, um, but a lot of our research over the last few years has been focused more on sort of some of the positive sides. So what are those? What are the benefits to to solitude? Yeah, so I mean, the the problems with solitude are pretty well documented. If we spend too much time alone, we feel lonely, we feel sad, we can feel anxious, and you know, we miss out on you know our evolutionarily adaptive function of spending time in groups. Humans evolved to be together. We're generally happier when we're with other people. Uh, you know, historically, we needed to be around people to survive. Um, and so, as I said, there's good reason why solitude has you know a bit of this bad reputation. Uh, it's certainly warranted, particularly when that solitude is. Is unwanted. Uh, now, in terms of the positive sides of solitude, if I had to sum it up in one word, I would say that solitude offers freedom. Okay, mm. um, and freedom in a, in a few different ways. So it offers freedom from. Okay, so when we are in solitude, it's like a respite. It's a break from the pressures and uh, an intensity of, of being in social situations. It's like stepping off stage, so you're not under the spotlight. Um, and it gives us a bit of a chance to recharge our batteries and not have to modulate and adjust our behaviors and language and thoughts to whatever the norms and desires and circumstances are in our particular situation. So freedom from is one of the big areas that I think solitude offers some benefits. I like that. I, I, I think when I, I think about time that I spend on my own, you know, I've been asked, you know, what do you feel when you're on your own? I, feel, I do feel like relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's almost something about uh, being around people all the time. I always say if, I, if that's the case, I never feel like I'm in my own thoughts. I'm always yes. kind of aware of myself and my individuality as it relates to other people. Mm-hmm. So that relation is, is as you say, it's, it's beneficial, it's positive. You know, we, we tend to want to be around others because it's beneficial for survival. That's how we've evolved to, to prefer to socialize. But at the same time, it, if you're always around others and relating to others, you never have that opportunity just to go, ah, and just kind of be yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that freedom from, it's its a freedom from, you know, the sort of the, the opinions and input and social mm-hmm. input that we get from others. It's also, a, you know, a freedom from sensory input in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I like to think of it as going into solitude as like driving with the windows down on the highway and then you roll them all up and suddenly it gets quiet and you realize that it had been so noisy and so much pressure and you didn't 
know it even until it stopped. And I yeah. think that's that's some of the freedom from that that solitude offers. But solitude also offers a freedom to. Okay, so in mm. in in solitude, we are able to have full autonomy, full choice to do what we would like to do, to think what we would like to do. There's privacy. There's the ability to uh, engage in activities that are meaningful to you. There's the ability to just reflect. There's ability to do some self exploration, to to contemplate, to to grow. You know, creativity is a is a is something that is is very much stimulated by solitude. Um, and so it's that combination of those freedoms that I think is quite unique to solitude. Uh, and really does offer a lot of uh, benefits that I don't think people realize they're missing out of if they're not getting solitude. For sure, yeah. And I, I can see how over time, if you're, 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 your solitude, your time to be alone is increasingly diminished, how it's almost like you wouldn't notice how much you miss it because yeah. it's so incremental and I can certainly speak to that as a parent and I definitely want to dig into that a little later on. Mm-hmm. But before we do, I do want to you know kind of flip to that sort of the negative of solitude necessarily, but what is the possibility of us if we don't have enough time alone and, and not enough time in solitude? What what might that look like and, and how might we define that? Yeah, so, I mean... Uh, because there's been so much focus on the negative side of solitude, and again, I, I want to be clear, for good reason, right? Uh, unwanted solitude, you know, being ostracized, being rejected, being forced into isolation. These are very serious problems. They lead to loneliness, and I don't have to tell you about the negative, you know, side of loneliness and how it's so, you know, detrimental and damaging to not only our mental health, but our physical health as well. And I'm sure it's been discussed as the report that came out by the U.S. Surgeon General just last year that basically equated the, you know, the mortality risk of, of chronic social isolation and loneliness is about the same as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, which is just, to me, it's just yeah. mind-boggling to think. Um, and so, of course, we need to pay attention to loneliness, and of course, we need to pay attention to social isolation. We we have to, you know, acknowledge the negative side of solitude. Um, but solitude is not loneliness, right? And yeah. solitude is, it can lead to loneliness if it's unwanted and if it's forced upon us. But you can also feel lonely in a group of people. Uh, people talk about feeling lonely when they're at, you know, at a work gathering where you might have some, you know, small talk conversations with people, but no intimate connection. And you'll leave feeling more lonely than when you got there. Adolescents will tell us they feel lonely, you know, at the, at the dinner table with their family. So it's it's not just about how much time you spend with others. It's also about the quality of that time. Uh, and of course, we can be by ourselves and not feel at all lonely. And that's, you know, that kind of transitions us into a discussion of some of those more positive aspects of solitude. Um, and you mentioned before you were interested in, you know, too much versus too little solitude. And a lot of people, and you were talking about, you know, what it's like to be a parent and you you don't get a moment to yourself and there's no me time, there's no chance to, to catch your breath and really dig into your own stuff. Um, and so this is not a new phenomena, but I was surprised when we started investigating, looking into what it's like to not have enough mm-hmm. solitude, that there wasn't an actual name for this thing. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to raise awareness about something or for people to even know that it's a thing, <laughs> if mm-hmm. there isn't even a, like an English word that they could use to describe this phenomena. Uh, and so uh, we considered, you know, loneliness is like this discrepancy between what you would like in your social life and what you are getting, right? So if you're dissatisfied with your social life, you feel lonely. So we flipped it. If you're dissatisfied with your solitary life, if there's a discrepancy between how much alone time you would like and quality time you would like and you're not getting it, we called it a loneliness, which is the negative feeling that comes up when you feel like you're not getting enough time alone. So I have to I have to say and make a confession that I did stumble on your term a loneliness in the middle of the pandemic because while I was being contacted by na- major news outlets asking <laughs> to comment on the impact of the pandemic on loneliness, yeah. I could see that you were being uh, asked for interviews on the concept of a loneliness. And when I saw, I think it was like it was on Twitter, I think, or the platform formerly known as Twitter, uh, <laughs> where it was coming up uh, that some of this popular press stuff that you were doing on this concept, I was like oh my god this is what i'm feeling because as a parent my kids were i think six and eight when the pandemic struck like they Mm -hmm. were little i was having to you know do schooling i was the chair of the department at the time i i was never alone and even like those those times between you know commuting you know i used to run to work or you know pre-pandemic a little bit now but those moments like 15 minutes in the car 20 25 minutes on a run i wasn't getting those anymore and when i heard your description of that term of loneliness it it almost it was it was a relief for me to, and it and to to have that described in such a very um 
relatable way was was really important. So I guess uh, that comes to you know the measurement, like how you know, you know you've defined it, you've described it. Um, you know, can you measure it? Is there a scale that you can develop uh, or that has been developed with regard to this? Yeah, so uh, we've tried to develop a, a measurement of a loneliness that was again kind of like a mirror image to the to the you know most common measures of loneliness. So we we have uh, used basically like a questionnaire sort of survey format, and we did all of the psychometric work and the measure development work all pre-pandemic. So this was something we started working with. You know, 2018 was I think the first time I mentioned the term at a conference presentation, uh, and then for a few years we you know we looked at developed the measures, did all of the psychometric evaluations, and we. We've come up with a with a well validated measure, twelve items, nice and short and easy for people to fill out. Most of the items focus on this discrepancy, so it has things like you know, if possible, I would love to spend more time alone each week, right? And I could really use some more me time, or you know, other factors are getting in the way of me spending as much time as I would like to alone. So it's not the same thing as how much time you spend alone. Very you know, very importantly, it's that whether it meets your specific personal needs, mm-hmm. and everyone is going to have their own sort of special you know, right amount. That's going to be just the right amount of solitude for them each week. So it's not about how much time you spend alone, but it's about whether or not that specific mm-hmm. time alone that you are spending is meeting your personal needs, right? So it, it's uh, it's one of these phenomena that seems to be governed by the Goldilocks principle, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, just like with the bowls of porridge, this one's too hot and this one's too cold and this one is just right. Uh, there are a lot of psychological phenomena that have that, that Goldilocks zone, that just right part where you can have too much of it, not so good, too little of it, not so good and everybody has their own personal optimal just right amount that is going to be best for them in terms of promoting well-being. So uh, for those listeners that may not know about psychometrics and survey methodology, can you just explain a little bit about what it means to have a validated scale? Yeah. So first thing that we started doing was just talking to people about this construct and this idea and saying, you know, we have this idea that people, you know, uh, might get feel grumpy or upset or stressed if they don't get enough time alone. Have you ever had this experience? And tell us a little bit about, about how it makes you feel and, you know, what makes you feel that way. And just based on these kinds of focus groups and conversations, we developed a list of items that we thought reflected this particular mm-hmm. phenomena. And then we administered those items. We gave them to thousands of, of people. Uh, and then what we talk about for psychometric properties is really just saying, you know, do these measures go together in the way that we think they do? So if all of the measures are supposed to be, all of the items measure a loneliness, if you score high on one of the items, you should score high on the rest of the items. If you score low on one, you should score low on the rest of them. So there's a bunch of statistical analysis that you do that basically see if these all kind of cluster together in the way that you hope that they do. And that tells you whether or not you're measuring something, right, in kind of a reliable, consistent way. And then the next step is, you know, are we measuring what we think we're measuring? And then a loneliness is supposed to be related to certain kinds of things from a theoretical basis. We think that a loneliness will make you feel stressed. So then we measured stress and we saw that high scores on the loneliness were correlated with high scores and stress. So that made us feel like we were measuring something that was interesting and, and what we we're supposed to. And then in a whole series of studies, we demonstrated that a loneliness kind of worked the way that we th- said it was going to in terms of our theory. And that made us pretty confident that, we, that we've had a good measure. Um, and what we found oh, now over a number of studies... Um, um, is that a lot of the outcomes related to a loneliness seem to mirror outcomes related to loneliness. So if you're high on a loneliness, you feel more stressed, symptoms of depression, bad mood, right? It, it seems to have that same kind of detrimental impact on your on your mental health and well-being um, by putting a stressor on you in the same way that loneliness does, of course, but in a different way. Um, and some of the results surprised us. It turns out you can feel lonely and alonely at the same uh, time. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I was like, is it yeah. possible... Yeah? Really? Yeah. And, and, huh. and, well, because each one represents a dissatisfaction with a different part of your life. Different one domain. of them is a dissatisfaction with your social life in that domain, exactly. The other is a dissatisfaction with your solitary life. Mm. So imagine maybe yourself during the pandemic, you're not getting a lot of good quality alone time. So you're dissatisfied with that. But you're also spending time around people, but it's under great stress. And maybe it's, it's video uh, interaction as opposed to in-person interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're rushing around. You don't have time to really, you know, have good intimate discussions with with people. And so because it's it's not just the quantity of your time, it's also the quality, you could be dissatisfied with both, right? You could go to work every day and mm-hmm. have just peripheral small talk conversations with people, mm-hmm. be around them all day, feel lonely, and then, you know, be so stressed at home and that you don't have a lot of time for good quality alone time. And so now you're happy with neither, 
And then so you're just dissatisfied in general, and, and it, it can go across both of these different spheres. And then is that additive, the impact on your well-being? Like, so if you're highly lonely and highly lonely, it, you know, does it, does it kind of have an incremental impact? Yeah, that's an interesting question. That we have not tested yet, actually. Yeah. So that's a, that, that'll be something to look at. We've certainly, I mean, both of those things are, are uniquely associated with negative outcomes. So we're, they're different constructs, right? So yeah. each of them independently predicts stress and independently yeah. predicts negative mood. But I haven't actually looked at sort of the interaction between them, which I think is what you're suggesting. That's kind of a cool idea. Because I would imagine it's, they're not necessarily correlated. Yeah. Right. Well, like the, they're 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 they are positively correlated, but like modestly so, because right. you know they both represent a, an aspect of dissatisfaction, right? right. So right? right, and both of them are correlated with life dissatisfaction. Right. right. You can give a general measure of life satisfaction, and and if you feel more lonely, you're less satisfied with your overall life, which would make sense because it's sort of a component of that. And what what's what's happened now that it's kind of caught on a little bit, right? So it certainly seems to have resonated with with a lot of people, and you know. You you spoke personally about your own experiences with that. Certainly my, uh, my understanding, just talking to people after this all c kind of came out, is that a lot of people were, were like you. They were looking for a word to describe this mm -hmm. feeling. Um, so I think that's kind of that's a good thing that we've been able to kind of name it and, and kind of raise some awareness about it. Um, and hopefully it, it'll have the kind of uh, incidental effect of, of allowing people to ask for more alone time, which I think is mm -hmm. something that's not so socially acceptable not as much as it should be, right? It should be okay to say to your friends on a Friday night, no, I'm just going to stay home and read a book, right? Mm -hmm. And that should be like, oh, cool, she's going to stay home and read a book, right? You shouldn't have to offer excuses for why you don't want to spend some time in socializing. You should be able to ask for and receive, you know, uh, the okay to spend time alone because it's normative and it's good for you. Um, in romantic couples, you should be able to say to your partner, you know what? To, you know, I need to I need to go away for an hour for myself now and have some alone time and not have it reflect a problem with the relationship. And I'll use that just as a as a quick transition. Some some other folks have picked up on this construct and this measure and have started looking at it in other domains. And uh, one researcher who studies romantic relationships looked at a loneliness in couples. And what they found was when one member of the couple was feeling lonely, it it, it predicted anger and feelings of aggression towards their partner. Which is interesting. <laughs> they, they, uh, uh, they had a really interesting methodology. They used like a voodoo doll paradigm. What? Where, <laughs> which is, yeah, it was fascinating to read about. So it was a virtual paradigm where they primed a loneliness in their, in half of the participants where they had them describe feeling lonely and, and what it felt like and describe experiences of it. And then they said, okay, now that we're done, you have a chance to vent some, you know, negative feelings that you may have had. Here's a, here's a, a virtual picture of your, of a doll. This represents your romantic partner. Press this button to stick them with a virtual pin. No. And what they found was that the, the participants who had been primed for a loneliness stuck more pins in their virtual partner as compared to another group that had been primed with like what their daily routine was. Oh my goodness. <laughs> this is why I love psychology. Yeah, that, I mean, I read that. I was like, how did they get ethics approval for that? Like, holy cow. Like, you're, you know, That's so. amazing. <laughs> um, and yeah, and we're only, what, four or five years into the study of loneliness. Like, who yeah. knows where it's going to go now? Yeah, um, yeah it, it, you know, you were talking about, um, you know, asking for time alone. Mm -hmm. I, I've sort of had this insight that I always think that my solitude time will come when I'm not free. Right? Mm -hmm. When I don't have something to do, oh, I'll get to be alone. I'll get to read that book. I'll get to just do my own thing. And increasingly, I'm realizing I actually have to schedule it in. Just yeah. like I schedule socialization in, just like I schedule time to, to yeah. exercise and work, I need to schedule my time to be alone and, and to give myself the gift of that solitude. And also, yeah. as you say, have my partner recognize that th that is something that I, I value and I can't just wait for him to give me that. Does that make sense? Because I, I feel yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm almost too passive in my expectations of, of mm -hmm. solitude. Yeah, it's funny. You you are describing a very common sort of trope that I've heard uh, from a lot of uh, moms out there, especially during the pandemic when things were even you know more amplified about feeling guilty somehow yes. uh, uh, guilt. about taking some time for yourself when of course you should be able to take time for yourself, right? And and if anything, there is now very clear research to demonstrate that time alone actually improves your relationships with others, right? Mm -hmm. And if people who choose to take time alone and experience that restorative process, it makes them, 
it elevates their mood and it makes them uh, rate their social interactions following alone time much higher than if they didn't have that kind of respite. So it's actually a good investment in your relationships to spend some time alone, which is one of the interesting kind of you know duality uh, mm. parts of, of solitude. Um, and there's now finally, after years and years and years of, of people you know passionately espousing all of the greatness of solitude, there's now some really good research finally to put some concrete evidence mm. to suggest that. And that's one of the findings that come out is that on days when you get a little bit more alone time, you appreciate and rate more positively your, your social interactions. Um, and again, you know, everybody has to find their right balance between alone time and, and socializing. And if I get up on my soapbox for a second, I really want to emphasize that that balance is very much a personal value, right? Mm-hmm. And so people who are prescribing, you need X amount of time alone each day, you need X amount of time interacting with people each day. It's just not true because it's different for everybody, right? And that in fact, there's now pretty good research to suggest that it's, it's the you know, it's the flipping back and forth, the alternating between social episodes and solitary episodes that is best for a whole bunch of stuff, including well-being. Um, there was a really cool study that looked at brainstorming, brainstorming alone versus brainstorming in a group versus the hybrid session where they go back and forth. And it was the back and forth session where they generated the most novel ideas and were the most creative. And there are studies of older adults in, in retirement communities that find that the, the, you know, the participants who rotate back and forth between time alone and time with others report the highest well-being so like we're really starting to get that that's what we need to do however it's not the same rotation and it's not the same amounts for everybody and that's really important for people to remember because two hours of of, uh you know solitude might be required to meet my need for solitude but someone else's could have 15 minutes or 30 minutes or four hours and it's and it's different for everybody you're speaking to my soul, my heart, and, and yeah, definitely the piece about guilt and and to all the, the moms and dads out there that are listening uh, and do feel that, that guilt about taking time away from your kids, whether that's with others or with yourself or with your spouse. Uh, what I like to do sometimes, and I need to remind myself, is what, because I do a lot of exercise, is I, my kids, if they complain, I say, this is what's important for me and my my well-being mm-hmm. and i hope that i'm modeling that for them so that they can see when maybe they don't recognize the benefit of it right now but certainly as they develop and you're a developmental psychologist so i'm sure you can appreciate <laughs> this as they develop they will recognize that that is that is a value and hopefully see that it, that is something that they too can invest in and invest in you know their time uh, their solitude time so yeah. on that note um why do people crave solitude? What are, what are the main motivations for solitude? I mean, I can think of my own, but I'm curious if, if your research has, or others have delineated commonly studied motivations for seeking solitude. Yeah, so there are there are actually there's quite a bit of research looking at sort of motivations. I, I think of it sort of in terms of the reasons why we might spend time alone, and they're very much tied in with our motivations. Um, and so, I mean, for those people who love solitude and who have positive, you know, views and and attitudes towards solitude, for them, solitude is a it's a full place, right? It's a place mm-hmm. where there's lots of stuff that they can do, where it's they 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 feel warm and welcome, and and it's you know it's like going home for them in a lot of ways. This is the you know individual difference characteristic of of you know affinity for solitude, you can call it, or preference for solitude. There's not even a really good word for it in the English language. Maybe we need another one for someone mm-hmm. who enjoys spending time alone, because it's not an introvert because introversion and extroversion is much broader and it, it, it contains aspects of, of sociability but it's certainly much broader than just that um, and uh, and so you know there is that motivation which seems to be not surprisingly associated with the most positive experiences of solitude and and that's when you're going to reap the most benefits if you're choosing to be there if it's something that is you know if it's an intrinsic motivation which means that it's enjoyable it's meaningful it's something that you're doing for you as opposed to having it kind of forced upon you that's when you're most likely to get the good stuff out of solitude. So that's sort of like reason number one or motivation number one. That's like the good reason, right? Um, and then there, of course, there are other reasons that, that people might end up in solitude that might have less positive outcomes because they're also very much connected to the reasons why they're there. So, I mean, over on the extreme side, you have unwanted solitude that's being ostracized, right? It's being, if you're a kid, it's being excluded, rejected. You don't have, nobody wants to play with you, so you end up spending more time alone. So here, solitude is an empty place. It's a place that you don't want to be and you're being forced into it. You know, for an adult, you move to a new city or you experience a, you know, global pandemic and get locked down in your one-bedroom apartment and there's nobody for you to, to speak to. 
So again, that's the most negative, you know, reasons why we could spend time in solitude and not surprisingly associated with loneliness and isolation and all those, you know, bad stuff. And then there are there are people who who like it seems like they're choosing solitude, but really what they're doing is they're avoiding social situations. Mm. Okay? So some people end up in solitude, not because, oh, hey, I'm happy to be here in solitude, but it's more like, okay, it's stressful to be around people. It makes me feel self-conscious. It makes me feel socially anxious. Um, and so as an escape, as an avoidance of that stressful situation, they end up spending more time alone. But again, that alone time is not something they're they're seeking. It's not something that they are approaching. It's more of an avoidance coping mechanism. Mm. And in the short term, it might make them feel a little bit better because they are, you know, not under the immediate stresses of, you know, what they perceive as a, as a negative, you know, social circumstances. But as, of course, as we know, in the long term, they're going to feel lonely and they're going to feel upset and they're going to ruminate and they're going to feel anxious. And, they're, and, you know, solitude is a place where they're missing out on all the good mm. stuff that they would like to be doing, but they feel too stressed to do. So I want to pick up something you did mention the difference between introversion and extroversion and kind of that loneliness is, is, is not it can't really be fully described by either of those. And mm-hmm. I can certainly say I would self define and I've done scales as an extrovert. And I do often what I find is I'll default to doing social events because I do enjoy socializing. And I also sometimes have FOMO, fear of missing out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then I also crave alone time, but I don't privilege it. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is just like our our social norms, right? In most Western cultures, uh, you know, extroversion is valued. And I think introversion over the last, you know, number of years, you know, with, with you know, its depiction in the popular press and, and some studies, it's, it's starting to stick up for itself a little bit, which, of course, introversion is meek and doesn't want to stick up for itself. But uh, so some good is coming there. But generally speaking, you know, Western society is based on, on you know, choice and, and assertiveness and, and independence and, you know, extroverts stand out in that way. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure to socialize and there's a lot of pressure to be extroverted. Um, but again, it's it's a much broader trait than than looking at you know just enjoying mm-hmm. solitude. Um, introversion, extroversion also involves you know how active you are and how impulsive you are and how much you seek out uh, you know new situations and how much you you take risks and how much you're seeking new stimuli and a chance to to you know to do exciting things. There's a sociability component to it as well. Um, but if you're, it's a much broader thing that just kind of subsumes part of, of enjoying solitude. And I mean, the classic example is the introvert who needs to be alone in order to recharge their battery, right? So it's not like they get stressed about being with around other people. They don't feel anxious about it. It just exhausts them. And for them, solitude is a place where they can recharge, where they can uh, rejuvenate, and they can just sort of catch their breath and then quite happily go back to socializing again. Extroverts are the opposite, right? You know, st- stereotypically so when they're in solitude, it's taxing, right? They're bored, they're fidgety, they want to be doing something, and they, they don't find it relaxing. When they want to relax, off they go to be around friends, and then they feel, you know, you know happy and rejuvenated and energized by being around those people. So, there are people out there who are listening to this who love solitude and are f- feeling very seen and, they, and they're glad that we're talking about it. But I just want to talk for a moment to the raging extroverts and the people who hate solitude out there. Just to put in a little plug, okay? So a lot of people hate solitude. Let's be very clear, okay? There's a great study, my favorite study on solitude. Uh, a researcher by the name of Wilson did this in 2014. Yes, university students to sit alone in a room for 15 minutes, no tech, just alone with their thoughts. Okay, so you can imagine most university students hated doing this. Okay, like when they you know rated their emotions before and afterwards, they found it you know boring and they found it aversive and they, they stressful and they, they just you know they they couldn't wait to get out of there. My favorite part of this experiment is in one of his studies, he had the participants test out what it's like to to uh, self-administer a painful electric shock. Just it's like press this button so you, f- you know what it feels like, and then he told them. During your 15 minutes there, if you want to do something, you can shock yourself. And more than half of the participants would rather receive a painful electric shock during 15 minutes of sitting alone than just sit alone alone with their thoughts. I have heard about that experiment. <laughs> it's crazy. But right? I've never known that it was couched in that, in that way. I've heard about the, the preferring to be shocked yep. and to sit alone. Oh, my goodness. That, you know, for the people who hate solitude, you have company. We understand that you don't like it. It's fine. But I, but I would say to you, like, 
there's a lot of myths about solitude. Like, do I do I have to meditate if I'm going to be in solitude? Right? Do I have to go for a two-hour walk in the woods in order to experience the benefits of solitude? So the short answer to those both of those questions is no. Okay. So one of the things we're coming to learn about solitude is it's not a one-size-fits-all. The important thing is that you have control over what you're doing, right? You have agency, right? You are intrinsically motivated. You're doing something that's meaningful for you, that's enjoyable for you. It might be a walk in the forest. It might be meditating. It might be, uh, you know, knitting. It might be watching a video. It might be, like, whatever it's going to do it for you that you feel is, is, is interesting, engaging, is meaningful for you, is going to, you feel is a positive way to spend your time. If you do that when you're alone, you can start to get some of the benefits of solitude. And it doesn't have to be two hours. There's great studies that are showing with even interventions now, 15 minutes of solitude time a day improves your mood, makes you feel more calm. If you do it for a week, we still see the effects a week later. Okay, so for people who say, I hate spending time alone, I'm bored, I don't want to sit and do nothing, you don't have to do nothing, and you don't have to go for two hours, you can you know, spend 15 minutes, just time for you to do stuff that you want to do, and there will be measurable benefits from doing just that. That's awesome. I, I love hearing that because I think there is that, like, I do always find with this podcast, it's really important to speak to the broad variety of listeners and to provide folks with just a little bit for them to, to maybe chew on to, to make any changes into their own um, lives. Because really, uh, Mining the Brain is all about empowering us with the science to think about uh, the benefits to our wellness and our health. So, uh, on that note, like, kind of, like, have you asked people what they like doing? in their solitary time like is there yeah so we've we've done a f uh, like uh, uh, like you I, I had this idea that like, it matters what we do when we are by yeah 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 right so so we have spent we've done a few studies now some with high school students and some with university students where we've basically asked them to just list the things that they do when they when they are alone so we asked them how much time they spent alone over the last week and then we have an open-ended question what are the three things that you do the most when you spend time alone uh, and not surprisingly in this particular you know demographic technology dominates mm. what they do when they are alone, but different kinds of technology, which I think is important. So some people will, you know, doom scroll social media uh, and, you know, look at all the shiny, happy people and feel inadequate. And, you know, that's not so good for us. Um, other people will watch videos. Fine. You know, other people will play games on their phone or, or, or game, etc. And some people, like, remember, the instruction was, what do you do when you're alone? They'll say, I FaceTime my friends. Right? Which opens up a much broader question, right? So if we're defining solitude as being alone, <laughs> separated from others, physically separated yeah, from yeah. others, but you're Isn't engaged in curious? virtual, literal, face-to-face -face yeah, interaction, yeah. right? So uh, that's another uh, you know, topic to discuss, but we've looked that's at how funny. technology can kind of interfere with solitude. But just to finish up on the activities, yeah. uh, we found a wide range of things that people do when they are alone. Uh, a lot of people also do you know, like recreational hobbies, right? Things yeah. for leisure, anything from you know, listening to music to playing music to knitting to reading for pleasure you know all these kinds of recreational intrinsically motivated positive activities um, they also get stuff done it's a place for doing homework or for or for working uh, chores or you know just doing stuff around the house um, also frequently mentored going out in nature um, a lot of people talk about spending time with their pets which also raises the issue are you alone if you are with your dog Ooh, right and then you know how far down the evolutionary chain do we have to go before you're alone, right? Maybe cat, you're still with someone, bird, fish, pet rock, like, you know, right? Like, you know, I, I actually think about these kinds of things. Um, and then you have some people who talked about, you know, doing nothing, which m different kinds of thinking, like ruminating and worrying, or even positive kinds of thinking, like, like you know, planning or organizing or daydreaming. Um, and one of the very basic findings we've had that's been replicated in several other places is doing something compared to nothing, anything compared to nothing is is better in solitude. People seem to dislike the sit alone and like the electric shock experiment told us, right? So generally speaking, people who do something when they're alone generally, uh, you know, report better, uh, you know, affect and less stress than those who say they do nothing. And that's because most of the people who do nothing are, are ruminating and worrying. And we know that that's not, that's not a good way to spend time alone. Um, and the most, but the most positive outcomes seem to be associated with these kinds of intrinsically motivated activities, right? And interestingly, when we measure a loneliness, time alone, and what people do when they're alone, there's an interesting combo effect, okay? So some people spend a lot of time alone and they report low loneliness. So they're happy with the amount of time that they're spending. They don't want more. 
Okay. And then you have another group of people who spend about the same time alone, but still report high loneliness. They've, they're spending a lot of time alone, but they're, it's not satisfying their need for solitude. They still want more. And it turns out that the difference between those two groups is what they're doing. Okay, so among the group that's happy and satisfied and doesn't want more time alone, they're more likely to do leisure activities and hobbies and intrinsically motivated these positive kinds of activities that are they can sink their teeth into and are satisfying their craving for solitary time. Whereas the other group, it's the other stuff, right? They're they're ruminating or they're scrolling social media and they're spending time alone, but it's not it's not good quality time alone, I would say. So just like going to a party and having only peripheral you know, small talk conversations, there's not enough meat on that bone to satisfy their hunger for, for socializing, so they still feel lonely. There's not enough meat on that bone in solitude to satisfy their need for solitude. I think I need to add the loneliness scale to my problematic social media use uh, research. Mm. Because I like, yeah, because it, it does. We just we literally published a paper yesterday called "Lonely and Scrolling During the Pandemic." Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, given all that, I'm I'm really interested to see how it maps out, particularly in a, a university student population, in terms of mm -hmm. what they're if they are doing the doom scrolling alone, and they are reporting high levels of a loneliness. Yeah, how is that relating to their problematic social yeah. media use, and of course their mental health symptoms as well? Yeah, tend to relate. So we got when when we saw those responses that said I'm alone but I'm FaceTiming with my friends it it got us really interested in how mm -hmm how these people are defining solitude. So mm -hmm. in a follow-up study, we gave them a, a series of different vignettes. They, you're alone in your room, so physically alone, okay? And then in the in default scenario, is like you're no tech, okay? And then mm -hmm. in, the, in the next scenario, they are engaged in passive social media. They're watching a video or they're scrolling. Then in the next one, they're using a text-based communication. And right, so they're they're messaging with someone or they're text messaging, and then in the last one they're doing an audio visual communication, so they're FaceTiming or mm -hmm. on Zoom. And then one of the basic questions we said is, do you consider yourself to be alone? Mm -hmm. Right. And what we found is a is a is a gradient where you know most alone in the completely no tech scenario, but they it's almost like they have different categories of solitude, uh, and that each they they consider it almost like a different form of solitude depending about how virtually connected they are, um, and it has different implications for how they feel depending on how they feel about solitude. So for people who enjoy solitude, we, again we need a good adjective for that. Someone who has a high affinity for solitude. If the technology becomes too intrusive, suddenly they're not so happy in solitude anymore. Mm. Mm. But for people who are shy and socially anxious, they like a little bit of the middle ground. They don't like if they're completely cut off, but FaceTiming is too stressful. So for them, they, you know, solitude is like, I can text, I can think about what I want to write before I put yeah, it back. Yeah. I don't have the visual cues to worry about. So everybody's a little bit different in terms of where their sweet spot is in terms of how tech is going to impact upon their solitude. It's fascinating because I have seen a very much a difference in people who en en enjoy FaceTime. Mm -hmm. and enjoy that sort of uh, and, and maybe like what I'm hearing is maybe for some people that might have been nourishing during the pandemic yes and for others it would have been ugh, avoidant yeah. <laughs> and, and yet others yeah. just not not satisfying at all yeah. right so that's yeah. fascinating so I want to dig in a little bit about the sort of developmental nature of the research on solitude and loneliness so it, you know, particularly now as I my daughter is just 13, um, you know, we know at that age, they start to really want to spend more time alone, they're developing their autonomy. Should, as a parent, should you be concerned if, it, if a teen wants to spend a lo time alone? And I'm hearing, you know, uh, obviously leading up to this, certainly not. But then I want to layer in that piece about tech and what are they doing alone? And, you know, maybe kind of <laughs> talk to us a little bit about that with that sort of uh, piece about the tech in mind and, and privacy, yeah. and what's normative yeah. for, for adolescent development. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, that cl classic parent of a teenager, you know, uh, problem in terms of trying to find the right amount of mm. uh, guidance and, and oversight in terms of your, you know, your teenager's uh, activities. Well, teen you know, adolescence is a fascinating time for studying solitude because of the convergence of so many different things, right? So right at around the age of 13, we're, f we're seeing, you know, peak levels of peer pressure and peak levels of conformity. And now they're starting to ease off just a little bit, right? But lots of pressure to social you know, for social interactions, and it's the norm for social interactions. So we, we've done observations of kids 10 to 13 on the playground, and they spend about 95% of the time that we watch them with other, at least one other person, right? So spending any time alone at recess or lunch is like 
deviant <laughs> at that. That's like, and it's frowned upon, right? Very negative because it's violating these social norms, and you know, there's so so much pressure, and they want to conform. But as they are making their way into the teenage years, a little bit more is an interesting convergence of things because, first of all, their need for privacy goes up. And then suddenly solitude becomes a place where they can actually feel a little bit better. It's a respite for very stressful social interactions and all the drama that goes on in teenage, you know, social mm -hmm. interactions. So it's a chance for them to catch their breath from that. Um, but there's also an understanding among teenagers that solitude is becoming kind of more okay. It's seen as more normative. We've we've asked kids of different ages, is it okay to want to spend time alone? And as they make their way through the teenagers, we see an increased understanding that there's a positive value to it. It's also a context for them to start delving into some of this self-exploration and identity development that is so critical in adolescence. So the short answer to your question is solitude is really important in adolescence because they need that opportunity to figure out who they are, mm. to try on different persona to, to, you know, to, to be free, free from and free to mm. do all the things that, that I've talked about because they're really, they're figuring out who they are and, and who they want to be. And solitude is a really good, you know, place for that. Plus it gives them a sense of control when they have so little control over so many you know, so much of their life and so much of their environment, if they're alone in their room, for example, that's that can be their respite and their place where they can do it. Um, so it's definitely something that we should encourage. But of course, as a parent myself, I understand we have concerns, right? So what are they doing in there? And should we, you know, how much should we be monitoring them? Um, and I mean, that that's a really hard question to answer on a very general basis because it's going to be so different depending on, you know, the, on the on the situation and the family and the parent and the, and the kids and all of their characteristics. You know, my general advice for that kind of stuff is you've spent the first 13 years of your daughter's life instilling in her a certain set of values, a certain set of, of ways of looking at the world. And at some point, our goal here is to, is to send them out into the world and let them, you know, let them live with those values. Not right? ready. Which is, <laughs> which is terrifying. <laughs> but also, I mean, like, but we have to remember that's the goal, right? I know. This is what we're trying to do. We are actually trying to get them to leave, <laughs> right, at some <laughs> point, right? And, and it, it is a very difficult task as a parent because, of course, we're, we're so over-involved and attached and we want, you know, want to know everything. And there's a time, you know, my kids are older now, so I've been through the teenage years and, you know, you know your kids go from telling you absolutely everything when they come home at the end of the day and it's, it's, you want you almost want them to say stop i don't need to hear all the details about this to grunting at you you know i had i had years of just monosyllabic grunts from you know from oh, your daughter from, and your yeah, son yeah just oh, like yeah especially my son i was like how was your day mm. anything interesting happen mm. like he couldn't even be bothered to open his mouth or move his lips it was just a grunt right <laughs> but again you have to and it's not easy, but you have to, you know, you have to trust that you have instilled those values that even if they're not talking to you about the little things, if, you know, hopefully not, but if there was a big thing that they would come in and they would tell you about it. And I, I understand your concern about, you know, technology use while they're alone in their room. But I have to tell you, they're, they're at school all day. You're not there they're walking home from school, they have their phone, you're not stopping them from doing anything that they wouldn't be doing anywhere else, right? And trying to do that is also, you know, you want them to, to feel your trust. They have to earn it, but you want them to feel your trust, you want them to feel your confidence in them that they're going to make good choices. Uh, and they also will benefit a lot from having the autonomy and, and privacy of their own space. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, I do notice that you know, my, my husband and my daughter are both more introverted, whereas my other mm -hmm. daughter and I are more extroverted. And I notice that they both really need time away from others. Like they're okay in the family home. Like they're both mm -hmm. a little bit more yeah. homebodied. But I do recognize that my daughters, the oldest, need to sort of maybe take a look at some makeup videos on and skincare mm -hmm. routines on Instagram. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and that's her time, like that solitude well, moment. Yeah. And, and sometimes she does like to kind of be next to me. Yep. doing that but then she's kind of like in in her own head like that's the mm -hmm. way i like to say is it, um, sometimes i'm in my own head but that's her way right and and as uh, the more i'm listening to you the more i'm r realizing the importance of you know that agency that self-definition that everybody is different and and certainly as an extroverted parent parenting an introverted child yeah. i have found that challenging 
to yeah. kind of understand and rectify uh, and put away my own needs and desires and really pay attention to and listen to not only my spouses, but my, my, all, my other kid as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, we're all learning and unlearning at the same time and struggling. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And, and of course, you figure it out for one kid and then the other kid comes around and they have a different oh. temperament and it's like you got to start yep. from scratch, right? So yep. And there'll be different, like I can see it already, like one kid doesn't care less about like you know, being on social media and connecting with friends. The other one is, yeah, it, it, it's going to be wild. And, and <laughs> my husband said he's going to build a cabin in the woods. <laughs> when, <laughs> that when sounds both good. Adolescence. Yeah. So I'm hearing that the, the amount of time needed to spend, uh, you know, to be solitude kind of differs by age. Yes. Like there's, you know, certainly. Yes. Ch- I mean, children. generally, yeah. Generally speaking, um, if you're just measuring time alone, it's, it's uh, like a positive slope. So kids tend to spend more time alone as they get older. Part of it is just safety issues, right? You're not going to leave an infant alone in a room for any extended period of time. A toddler, right, exactly, can never be left alone for any period of time. But as kids get older, it seems like, well, they they experience more solitude. They probably also experience it more positively. Um, And time alone actually tends to to increase uh, linearly and steadily all through childhood into adolescence, into early adulthood. And then it kind of plateaus for a while. Sometimes for for parents, it goes down (laughs) because, of course, you have your kids that you're around. And then it it goes up again in, in in, in older adulthood, so there is a definitely a developmental curve, um, but there are also differences in terms of like the implications of wanting to spend time alone. And so your daughter is entering an age period where it's starting to get a little bit more positive. You know, she's coming out of an age period where it's probably been the most problematic to choose to spend time alone because of all these things we talked about, social norms and peer pressure. For really young kids, you watch a preschool or kindergarten classroom, lots of kids are playing alone, mostly because they don't have the social skills to maintain long social interactions of many turns, which is fine, they're learning how to do that. But because it's not the norm to spend so much time with others, those that like spending time alone, it's it's not a big deal. They don't stick out so much. But if they were spending that much time alone on the, you know, the schoolyard when they were 12 years old, they would, you know, they would stick out like a sore thumb. And so what about cross-cultural differences? You talked a little bit earlier about Western cultures and sort of Western mm-hmm. cultural ner- norms. And of course, the intro, you've done a lot of work with colleagues across the globe. So mm-hmm. what, what are we seeing? What, what are the differences in terms of motivations or time or things that they do in, in solitude across yeah. the country? Uh, there's a, there's a, some similarities, but there's a lot of really interesting differences. One of the fascinating differences for me is uh, it has to do with how much it's valued and accepted to choose to spend time alone. So in Western cultures, because we value individuality, because we value individual choice, I, I know I've just mentioned there's different times when it's probably you know more versus less acceptable to do it. Generally speaking, people who choose to spend time alone, it's a relatively benign you know choice. Right, so it, it's kind of okay to do that, it, and and as I said, once you hit teenager and into adulthood, it's pretty normative, and people understand that you want to spend some time by yourself. Um, I've done some work with some people in mainland mainland China, and of course, a very different culture, much more collectivistic, much more focused on group orientation, uh, and you know the value of the many as opposed to the one. Uh, and in that culture, if we look at the same phenomena, the choice to choose to spend time alone because it's enjoyable, because it's something that you would like to do, is actually viewed much more negatively. It's viewed much more deviantly because according to the cultural norms, you should never choose yourself over the group. You should never choose to prioritize your own individual needs or wants to spend time alone over contributing towards the collective, contributing towards towards uh, the benefit of the group. And so for kids at all ages who are choosing to spend time alone and say that they're enjoying it, they're actually uh, at risk for being victimized and, and, and peer exclusion and, and uh, you know, having a very negative response from teachers and from peers because they are violating a, you know, a fundamental fundamental societal norm in that culture, which is that the group always comes first and that we should always put the needs of the group uh, uh, beyond our individual needs. So that's one sort of interesting sort Mm. of cultural difference that, uh, that we found in this phenomena. And, and sort of related, uh, where do you see this research going? Yeah, we, we start to do some cross-cultural work, but of course that's only the tip of the iceberg, and I think we have a lot more work to do to understand experiences of solitude in places based on population density, based on cultural differences in you know how much privacy is afforded to people, based on cultural differences in terms of the you know value placed on the family and whether or not it's sort of appropriate. We've done some work in in some Scandinavian countries where solitude is highly valued, uh, and you know speaking in 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 
situations where we would normally make small talk is, is more frowned upon because it's more private and people are only choosing to speak when they know you well. And, and so the, I think we're, we're just, you know, some interesting tidbits, but there's more, much more that we could do there. And, and I think there's just so many unanswered questions around the tech side, and just in terms of how technology is really forcing us to redefine or reconceptualize what solitude is, right? So if, if we're thinking about solitude of being off stage, right, where you are free from the demands and the expectations and uh, having to, you know, modulate your behavior based on, you know, being under the scrutiny of others, but you're off in the forest now and you're carrying your phone with you and at any moment you can be interrupted and somebody, right, and then suddenly you're back in the spotlight. So if there's the expectation that you could at any moment be back in the spotlight, is that really solitude in the same way? And then it gets, you know, way more complicated when we're talking about, you know, what if you're having a conversation with an AI? Is that solitude, oh. <laughs> right? Like it's, it's just going to get worse and worse because if we're trying to define what it means to be yeah. physically alone but virtually interacting, do you have to be interacting with an actual human or could you be interacting with something that is acting like a human and maybe you don't even know it passes a Turing test and you can't tell, does that mean that you're alone? I mean, there's a, a lot of really interesting unanswered questions around this and, and I think solitude you know, it's going to have to be something that we are going to have to jealously guard, I guess would be a, one, one way to do it. And I think just getting back to the developmental angle, and I'll get on my soapbox for just one more little rant, uh, it is certainly much more common these days for kids to be programmed to do a lot of different activities and to be around other kids a lot. And that's the norm now. And there's so many more activities that are available than there used to be. And there are niche activities. So if they're into sports, there's all different kinds of sports they can do. There's all different kinds of music lessons they could take. They can do drama. They can do dance. They could do theater. They can, you know, do taekwondo. Again, you. And so what's happened is they are programmed so much that and I, I you know I understand all the reasons why this happens but what what gets lost in that what gets diminished is their time to just be alone in their room and be bored yeah. uh, and you know of course the phone is always waiting or the video game console is always waiting if you are you know free to do something to do so there's a loss there I think of something that is really special because being alone and bored I mean that's that's the recipe for creativity. That's the recipe yeah. for daydreaming. That's the recipe for, for you know, self-exploration and self-expansion. Uh, and I worry a little bit that if, as kids get shunted from one activity to another, that there, something is going to be lost there in terms of their ability to just be kids and to just be by themselves and, and, and uh, you know, and, and play by themselves and, and daydream and, and use their imagination. And, and so uh, I guess I would just put a shout out for, for parents, and I understand all the reasons why we do it, and we, you know, we've all done it, but just to, to not completely lose that. And we have to, in some cases, really help our kids develop the capacity for solitude, because it's so easy for them to have other stuff to do now that draws them out of solitude that they probably don't even want to do it anymore. But it's, it's, it could be so good for them, we have to help them develop the capacity to do it. Those are very wise words, and perhaps great words to end on, unless you have any final thoughts. Uh, no, I think we've, we've covered a wide range of, of topics and I've really appreciated the chance to chat about it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, for those that are listening and have been as hooked as I am as the con in the concept of a loneliness and how to grab more solitude in your life, a reminder that Rob's book will be coming out in 2025 titled All Alone, The Promise and Paradox of Solitude. Minding the Brain is gratefully sponsored by Carleton University's Faculty of Science. If you find this show valuable and you want to support Minding the Brain, consider leaving us a review or rating on your podcast app of choice. Leaving a review or rating increases our visibility and helps new listeners discover the show. If you want to connect with Minding the Brain on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Minding the Brain. You can also find more episodes and show notes at our website, mindingthebrainpodcast.com. Thank you for listening to Minding the Brain.